Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Hello and welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Happy impending Easter weekend to everyone. Today's show will feature Chip Frederick. We will talk Vanderbilt baseball. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The news today is sponsored by Sutherland and Belk, an SEC sports-loving injury law firm in Nashville. These folks will shoot you straight on your rights and your options when you have been injured in an accident. Give them a call at 615-846-6200 to get your questions answered. You can also visit them online at sbinjurylaw.com and tell them you heard about it on the Vandy Sports Podcast. Vanderbilt starts a three-game baseball series at LSU starting tonight, which again is Thursday as we do this. The Commodores play at 6.30 on Thursday, 8 on Friday, 2 on Saturday. All those games can be seen on the SEC Network Plus, except the middle game. You can check that one out on Friday night on ESPN2. Chip Frederick appears on our guest line, which is sponsored by my friends Scott and Missy Tannen at Bowling Branch. And my goodness, I have talked about Bowling Branch sheets for years. There's a reason why they are the most comfortable sheets I have ever slept on. You spend about a third of your life in bed, and a lot of that one-third of your day determines how the rest of your day goes. Well, let me tell you, I sleep so much more comfortably on Bowling Branch sheets. I recently was out of my house for a week. And the places I stayed did not have Bowling Branch sheets. And you can tell a difference in case I had forgotten. That was kind of an unpleasant reminder. Anyway, give them a try. Go to BowlingBranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. We welcome Chip Frederick to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Interesting weekend. Vanderbilt going to LSU. That series starts today, which is Thursday. Uh, but before that, opening days today, which has always been one of my favorite days of the year. I don't think you and I have ever had this conversation. Who's your favorite major league team, Chip? Well, I grew up a Reds fan. I I was uh, I'd go to the games, you know, with my father, and we one of those get me out of school a couple times uh, to watch uh, playoff games in the fall and back when those the big red machine day. So I grew up a Reds fan and, and uh, really cherished those memories. Um, you know, and then I kind of became sort of a pseudo Braves fan after that. But Nashville was really interesting for those listening um, in, in the, in the seventies, late seventies, early eighties, Nashville was a, a big time Cincinnati uh, Reds area. They, they had the, the old, which is now, I guess, Fox 17, which was WZTV. Sure, I remember that. But they carried the Reds games um, before there was any Fox Sports Ohio, Fox Sports Tennessee. 
And it was, uh, you know, when, when you didn't pre-cable and the Reds were the only game in town pretty much on a regional basis. And then Atlanta kind of creep, crept up and, 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 and got a little bit of that. Memphis has always been a, a, a Redbirds town for the Cardinals. And, but Nashville forever was a big, big Cincinnati area with uh, Southern Kentucky, you know, all of Kentucky, I guess, falling into that. So I was a Reds fan and, and uh, still follow them today, but not as much as I did before. But it was good memories there. Yeah, I took the same path when I was a kid, and we're about the same age. The Reds were the only thing you could see on WZTV, and of course, that was when that dynasty was winding down, and I love Pete Rose, but then the Braves came to TBS, and yeah. Rose had been traded by that time. He, he went to the Phillies, and then the Expos, and then back to the Reds, but by that time, the Braves were starting to blow up, and, and the Cubs were on TV too, and I, I liked them, but... I became a Braves fan because I liked Dale Murphy, and of course they were awful then, but I think that's the path that a lot of us took as we watched what was in front of us, and it's really interesting to look back because like in the late 70s and early to mid-80s, we always thought that if Nashville got a pro sports team, it would be baseball. Larry Schmidt was always pushing that, and I appreciated that, but it is really weird to look back. I think Nashville almost once upon a time in terms of pro sports, was a bigger baseball town than anything, and, and boy, that's changed in the forty years or so since. Oh yeah, and and you had all the success with the sounds, and you know, I'd go to games, sounds games, and they was kind of they were affiliated with the Reds and the Yankees through the years. But there were games when they'd rope off the outfield, the outfield literally they would bring rope out there, and fans would would sit in the outfield on the warning track just to get enough people in the stadium. Of course, Schmidt was big on selling popcorn and ice cream and those helmets that you would get, the little helmets, but uh, w- with the soft serve ice cream. And, and uh, he was a master at that. But yeah, it, and, and, you know, hearkening back to the memories of opening, I thought about this actually this morning. I'm glad you brought it up, Chris. When I was in the sixth grade, uh, on opening day, this is my opening day memory. Didn't go to the game, but I brought a radio to school. Uh, I brought a transistor radio, and the Reds were playing for us. And I still think they do always kind of. They, I don't know if they exactly played the very first game, but from tradition, they always would um, be the first game, and they always played at home. And I l- would listen to the game when I could in between classes, or I'd go to the restroom and put it in my pocket or I'd have it in my satchel bag. And I remember the game that was in sixth grade, it got rained out. They were playing someone. So I just turned it off. Eventually they tried to play, but that's how, uh, that's how much of a Reds fan I was when I was in sixth grade. Oh yeah. The, the memories I have, I was one of those people sitting on the warning track at Greer stadium. And baseball was the thing, minor league baseball. If you didn't live through it, you would not have believed how big of a deal it was when we got that in 1978. And that's how I got hooked on being a sports fan. I didn't care anything about baseball, football, basketball until my dad took me to a Sounds game the first year they were here. But we had all the ice cream helmets, my brother yeah. and I did. I think we've still got them somewhere. <laughs> uh, in fact, I've, I've, I've pondered an eBay order of all the ice cream helmets just for nostalgia's sake, although I, I don't know where they'll go and uh, I might catch some grief for doing that for my wife, but uh, they had the standings boards that you could get if you you had all the helmets. We never, I think by the time we got all the helmets, they were out of standings boards. But yeah, I remember the promotions and the San Diego Chicken and exhibition games against the Yankees. Um, I remember catching a foul ball or not catching it in batting practice. It rolled under 
the bleachers and getting Goose Gossett to sign it with the Yankees were here. Um, and Rudy May signed it and a couple other Yankees on that team. I just, the memories from that time, and I remember my first Major League game, my parents took us in the summer of 1980 to see the Braves. They had a series with the Reds, followed by a series with the Phillies at Fulton County Stadium. And that's when the Braves would struggle to draw 5,000 fans. We sat right behind the dugout. The players were accessible. I remember wearing my giveaway sounds jersey. And Frank Pastore, who pitched for the Reds as a reliever, walked out of the dugout, turned around, saw the sounds jerseys, came over and talked to us because he had pitched there. That was the first big leaguer I ever met, and, and I was just on cloud nine. Uh, that a Major League Baseball player actually took the time to speak to me. But, man, those are great memories from back in the day. Oh, yeah, and, and, and that Sounds jersey, it was white, and it had Sounds and yes. red, and I think it maybe had Channel 2 on the back or Kroger. Or some, it was a big, you know, that yeah. was the only bad thing about it. That they that you had to you know had the that the advertisement, but it was very strange, Chris. The other day, um, uh, and we'll finish our pro baseball. I'm sure there people want to listen talk about Vandy baseball, of course. Here, that's why they're here. But I, I drove over near the old Greer Stadium the other day. Uh, my daughter trained soccer around the corner uh, in front of the Children's Museum. They have a soccer complex over there, indoor, and and I was waiting on her, so I drove over to Greer Stadium. It's just very eerie. Um, seeing how, you know, there's no stands anymore. They've torn it down, just a lot of grass and dirt. And you can sort of make out where the stands are. You can tell because it was, it was in your memory. But it's very weird to go over there now. And I'm, they've got some plans for it, hopefully, one day. It's too much of a valuable property. But just to see that, uh, it's kind of strange to, uh, and where we've come and where the stadium is now here in Nashville. So a lot of memories there. I went to so many games there that I think – It'll be etched in my mind just about every nook and cranny of that ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, fun summer, spring and summer memories. And, and uh, it's just amazing how we, and we went for a while without even having a team, if you remember. The people don't realize that Nashville uh, didn't have a team for, uh, I don't know how long it was. Was it a decade or so? Maybe more. It was more, yeah. Yeah, sounds went away. So, good times. Um. Well, before that, I mean, we've always had minor league baseball since 78, I believe. I think we've had a continuous run of, of teams, haven't we? You know, I thought, though, that we didn't. Somebody's going to have to check up on that because I thought there was a period uh, when we didn't. Uh, but maybe maybe it wasn't as long as I thought it was because I know we had some ownership changes. And, you know, we had a time when there was two diff- two teams. We housed two teams in one year, which was, the I think, the Express or something. Uh uh, two teams yeah, I remember that we had we had baseball every night for a stretch. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, and Schmidt was probably the only guy who could, who could pull that off the way he did. Yeah, I mean they they went a stretch. What when we lost the Nashville Vols? I say we. I wasn't even around then. Um, you know, in, in the '60s, I guess whenever they they stopped being in existence. Um, to you know, to to seventy eight. I'm looking on Wikipedia. Okay, we had I believe we've had continuous minor league baseball. Since 1978. Okay, I, so, did. I thought there was maybe a you know four or five year period we didn't, but uh, that proves proves that my I just was kind of they, when they kind of it, when Greer became and this was the way with a lot of people when Greer became such a dilapidated place, people didn't want to go over there. It's, the interest was lost there, so uh, didn't know that didn't know it was continuous. That's good good info. Uh, if I can take us on a quick nostalgic non baseball but Nashville related sidebar. Go ahead. The worst thing Nashville ever did was get rid of Opryland. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, don't even go there. I mean, do you realize how wildly successful it would be today? Um, oh. And just, you know, if you could even drop a, if you could mimic Dollywood and put it, put another version of Dollywood here, if the land wasn't so uh, dead gum expensive around here. But yeah, that, that was a mistake. And I think through the years, you know, at first they wouldn't admit it, but I think I saw a special on television. I was working out one and they basically the executives at Gaylord just flat out admitted it was a, a horrendous mistake. So yeah, yeah I mean, was it was so mistake. iconic. I, I know that part of the reason was they didn't have the monster roller coasters and stuff like that. That, yeah. that the other parks had. It was going to be expensive to build one of those. I really think, and maybe we take for granted what's with us, but I really think now you could bring that back and people would go just for the nostalgia and just because it's something, right? I mean, the, the park was cool and kitschy and all, all sorts of things. I, I just think that it was a cultural staple of this town uh, and a link to our past that it's gone for good. And I wish to God somebody would try to recreate that. Yeah, it, I mean, just, um, it was always, you know, people would come from out of town, and that was the first place you'd go. You'd go to Opryland and, and take them, and uh, just the shows and the and the roller coasters and the, the ice cream shaped like a banjo or the, or the guitar. It was chocolate and uh, vanilla ice cream with vanilla in the middle. I'm sure I remember this. It's, it's all coming back to me, but uh, it was called a banjo bar, I think, or something, or and, and just yeah. those... Those uh, were great times, and I wish they could bring it back. Unfortunately, I think you know Dolly Parton was gonna. They were thinking about bringing something back a few years ago, and it fell apart. Kind of in the same area, not the, of course, you know, the, where the Opry Mills is now, but it was down the road a little bit. And uh, I really wish that would uh, come to fruition. Well, they at least have a water park indoors at the hotel now, which yeah. is pretty neat. So. All right, let's talk Vanderbilt baseball. Commodores head to LSU, just really on a roll. Number one in the country in some of the polls. Three losses uh, this far into the season is is pretty tremendous. One of those, I guess, a one-run loss, one or two-run loss. The other one, that spanking they got to Oklahoma State, which I think the final in that was 10-6, to but it really didn't feel that close. Uh, your thoughts on the state of the program heading into Baton Rouge? Well, they just continue to roll here, Chris, and and uh, I think they're on. Uh, I like their disposition. They they've got, um, you know, as you mentioned, the the, the Friday Saturday or the in, the in this case some weekends Thursday Friday starting situation. The one two punch that they have is is coveted by any any manager in the in the country or head coach in the country as they call them in college uh, at the at the Division One level. It's it's pretty remarkable, and and they're. Uh, they're headed into a place when I talked, you know, last week, um, not that I was overlooking Missouri. We talked about that, but uh, how they were going to react in the next six games with more importantly, um, the LSU series. Cause I think that's, you know, LSU struggling and that's unusual and they are on them. I mean, that, that is a place that when I say they, their fan base, uh, you know, it is a very, I will say from my playing days, um, you know, I, I enjoyed Baton Rouge and Starkville the most as far as our road trips. The fans are very knowledgeable about baseball. They're passionate about it. They know what good is. They're as much as they get on other uh, teams and, you know, yell at you from the stands after the game. There would always be some camaraderie. They'd talk to you. And, and if a pitcher did really well in a game from the other team, they would applaud. And it wasn't just a obnoxious 
fan base. They're just passionate. Those two fan bases I just mentioned, LSU and Mississippi State, uh, they really started the trend back in the Ben McDonald when I played and and even before him. And then you had Mississippi State with the Will Clark and the Palmero those days. I mean, you point to those two programs as the ones that really carried the, you know, carried things for the league and they're in their surging to where it is today. But they're on LSU now. I mean, they're, they're, I've been reading some media there and some you, you read message boards, which I don't do a lot of other than yours. But, you know, you, they're limping into this series. And this is a very uh, touchy series for Palmineri and his club, because if they don't turn it around, I mean, you say just, well, this is the third weekend. But there are desperate times in this league. When you limp in one and five like they are, you've lost games to, you know, Air Force. You get railroaded at home by Oral Roberts when they scored 22 runs in your park. So, you know, how Vanderbilt handles this, you got a lot of kids who, you know, this will be the biggest crowd that that we will face uh, so far this season. I think they're offering 50% capacity of 11,000. So, you know, five, 6,000 people, they might cram in a few more. Um, I, I think this is the test that we've been looking for. I, I think, and I'm just going to be blunt, I don't think Missouri's any good. Uh, I, it was a series that I was impressed with the business-like manner. We went in there and, and did the job and got the sweep. Uh, but you notice that I think there's some, and it was good that we didn't have anybody, it was in a letdown on Sunday that you worry about of looking ahead to Baton Rouge. But you know, LSU is going to do, throw everything they can, Paul Maneri, in order to try to right the ship because they very well could be looking at one and eight if they don't. And those are that's a tall task to climb out of. So uh, where this program is, no Vanderbilt, 20 runs, I mean, 20 wins so far. It's impressive. One, two punch. You got guys hitting well, you know, we're running a little bit more. We're striking out less than we have on the last weekend. At least we did. So, uh, but this is going to be uh, one of those. And I keep saying, well, every weekend is a test. And in this league, it is. But uh, a lot of our young guys have, um, you know, how they're going to be put to the fire this week against a desperate team like LSU. And I'm excited to see how they're going to handle it. Yeah, I don't like this spot for them with LSU with its back against the wall. I think LSU's got an ace in Marceau. You never know how Jaden Hill can pitch for them. He's an, an, an extraordinary talent. Uh, and, and this is the place where it seems like Vanderbilt has struggled in the past. Like 2019, this is about the time you saw them drop a couple of road series. I think things get markedly easier for this team after exams. You're starting to come down the home stretch. Uh, of the academic part, um, you know, in terms of exams and things like that coming up soon. So, t- to me, this is almost a prime spot for them to lose a series. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, we've talked about in the past here that, that there's going to be a bump or two in the road, and there always is in a, se- in a season. And, you know, I'm not predicting it at all. I mean, every time I do that with a, a Tim Corbin club, uh, especially one that's as super talented as this one, it, it fails to happen. But I don't know what really last weekend told us that much because I just, I don't think that it was a talent mismatch. Um, and, you know, they got the job done, scored a bunch of runs the first two games. You had the whole lighter thing in game two. If you're going to pull them, you're going to take them out. And I think it was the right call, especially since the number of pitches that he threw the week before. And there's bigger things that this team has to accomplish 
it was almost like, you know, I bantered back and forth with some people who asked me and, you know, he got the no hitter and, and, you know, back to back, no hitters would be nice, but you know what, there's bigger things to do and you can damage the kid. Uh, even though I think lighter has the great, a great disposition for his age and, and the amount he's pitched, uh, there's bigger fish to fry, as they say, uh, to than to worry about, uh, the no hitter the second time around. And, um, Again, I don't know what really it told us last weekend other than we're a lot better than Missouri. Yeah, I'm with you. I did not make a lot of the Missouri series. I thought the Carolina series, they played really well. Would like to have seen a little bit more hitting, but I think Carolina's got an underrated pitching staff. But back to Jack Leiter, have you ever seen a better pitcher in college baseball or more talented one than that kid? You know, it, it goes uh, without saying. His mental approach is what he is dialed in and uh, that's what impresses me more than anything about Jack Leiter is the fact of his, I mean, you can tell he's been around the game, you know, uh, Kamar Rocker's been around athletics and he's been around his dad, who was a all American football player at Auburn. Of course he wasn't around then, but that experience of his dad being a pro coach and a college coach and he, and he gets the media and he gets uh, the fandom and the, admiration from the fans and he gets the big arenas and the big stadiums and all that. But Jack Leiter on a specific baseball uh, perspective uh, just is, that is what is amazes me is he is, um, and, it, and it was a little things I noticed and I think they showed it in one of the broadcasts and it was when he, the, the game in Nashville uh, against um, South Carolina, I think it was, but they and they might have brought it up here, but there was a time when a batter called timeout and he was pitching. And the batter, I guess, you know, the way everybody backs out and adjusts their gloves and does all this stuff. And Leiter stayed in his set position the entire time. He did not move. It was basically like, You're gonna step out on me and let's go. When you get back in the box, I'm ready to go. And that showed me an edge about him and a toughness about him that look. I am attacking you. You're not hitting me. And there's a difference if you get what I'm saying. Uh, and that's what's impressed me the most about him. When he gets his repertoire pitches and the breaking ball over uh, and he can use his fastball that is electric, that, that is what people don't understand about from a player's perspective and from hitting perspective. Although I didn't hit in college, I didn't hit, hit in high school. And Tim Corbin, there's an Adam Sparks did an article. If you have a chance to read it, it was in today's Tennessean, the paper edition. Now it could have been the way this world is with paper edition. It could have been last week, but uh, I do uh, get the morning paper and read it, and it was talking about Rocker and Lighter, and 93, 94, 95. Just because that speed, it doesn't mean that it all comes at you the same way. Some people might think, well, a 94-mile-an-hour fastball by lighter looks like a 94-mile-an-hour fastball by rocker, and it doesn't. They come from different arm slots. Sometimes pitchers throw what's called a heavy ball, and, and that basically just means it explodes out of the hand a little differently and gets up on the hitter differently. You've got rocker's situation, which, although lighter is not, I don't think has the height advantage at all. You know, rocker's a bigger guy than lighter. But you've got the stride factor, almost like the Randy Johnson situation. He was so tall that when he released the pitch uh, from, from his hand, because of his leg length, 
he was that much more on top of you and the ball was just a little quicker. So there is a difference in that article by Adam Sparks really talks about that. And Corbin says these two guys share a lot of information and you don't always get that from other programs that have two guys like that that are so prolific and, and are going to get drafted in the top four or five picks. Absolutely. Unless something happens strangely that they collaborate and they're friends and they communicate about the uh, way they attack hitters. And I think that's the most impressive thing about those two guys and this staff. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. Were you at all worried about Kumar Rocco, Rocker seeing his velo dip against Missouri? I mean, I don't know how accurate the TV guns were. Apparently there was a statement made that I didn't hear about that the gun was off a little bit. But what was your takeaway from that? I mean, we've seen his velo go up and down before in season at points, so maybe nothing to be concerned about. But I want your perspective as a pitcher from what you were seeing. Maybe a little bit. It was damp. It was cold. The wind was blowing uh, quite a bit. He was going, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, he was going on one day less rest. Is that yeah. right? Is yeah. That, okay. You know, I, I don't think there's too much to read into it. I think tonight, uh, you know, as, as we record this on Thursday, he'll be amped up. Um, and we'll see if there's a if there's a market difference tonight, but I don't think it'll be that cool in Baton Rouge. That does play a part in it. You got the wind blowing in your face. If it if it does, that can affect your fastball. But I don't think anything. Too, I think Kumar Rocker can throw the ball a lot harder than he does, but I think he maintains it, and they've got him dialed in to where, you know, if you're going to try to throw a hundred, you know, and and you expend a lot of energy, and he's kind of sort of effortlessly sometimes throws the, 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 what he does as far as the gun. And I think the gun, you and I texted back and forth. It might have been a little bit off, but uh, we'll see what he does this weekend. But I'm not concerned about it right now. What's your take on their Game 3 pitching situation? I did not get to see a pitch of the last game against Missouri. As you pointed out, that's a bad ball club, so I don't know what I could take away from that. They did give up one run, which I guess was encouraging – so what were your takeaways after seeing game three uh, with everything else we've seen the last few weeks on where they are on, on game threes and, and maybe alternate ideas if, if they have to go away from Thomas Schultz? Well, I'm not kicking the can down the road here, although I probably am. I've said, you know, it's a wait and see situation with Schultz. You know, this time of year in years past, if you remember, Chris, this is when Rocker kind of got his chance to move into that. It was like the third or fourth weekend of his freshman year. And this is when Mason Hickman made his jump from being the midday starter or the midweek starter 
to the third starter, and he was so successful in that role. Uh, you know, I, I see where Schultz is on the board as far as pitching on the Saturday game three. You know, who your options after that? Would it? You know, I don't know if Miles Garrett is particularly ready right now. Uh, just again, he's still learning. Um, getting his feet wet a little bit on the midweek and had a, a semi-rough outing against Tech, gave up the, the home run. You know, you wonder if it's Slaboki or or someone else uh, would slot into that um, role. But I think this weekend will be a telling tale as far as if, if Schultz is going to keep that role or they're going to go to somewhere else. But it, I see that he's still on the board, as I said, for the Saturday for the game three, which in this week is Saturday start. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of seems like the same story every Sunday with Schultz. He throws pretty well for about three or four innings. He gets hit, you know, hit up for three or four runs during that time. And then they just throw the kitchen sink and, and try to finish the game out with whoever they got left. And they've had the luxury, especially against Missouri, they didn't pitch anybody or they didn't need to pitch anybody and, and go deep in the pen. And they haven't had to. And when you're, you know, you're, you're creating this internal competition, so to speak, for the game three, because these guys know from a psychological standpoint, unless they get in midweek, which lately have only been one game, your chances to go out there and prove yourself are limited. So when you do get in, the pressure is to perform, and, and you're seeing some guys come in and throw strikes, and, um, you know, it, that that remain. You know, I think this weekend will tell a lot. I don't know what you think about the game three or who you would, who you would throw out there in the game three. Um, maybe yours would be different than mine, but I, I think this will go a long way to see where we are as far as that's concerned uh, going forward. Well, one thing I would like to see, and there's not a whole lot to criticize about how the way this staff has managed pitching, and I don't even know this is a criticism, right? Because sometimes you plan to use a guy in a spot and then it doesn't materialize. But I would like to see Ethan Smith get stretched out a little bit more just to get him ready in case they do need to put him in a third or fourth spot, which I think that's the way I would have gone to start the season. Now, their plan, I think, with him – was him to maybe close or to split closing duties with Luke Murphy. Murphy seems to have taken the job and, and run with that, but it's also only been four saves, and sometimes his command is a little bit wonky, which is not unusual for college pitchers, right? And so maybe you can make the case that they're holding Smith back as that emergency guy if, if they fail in closing situations or if they don't get it right in Game 3. But he is now tied for ninth on the team in innings pitched. He has made six appearances, only thrown nine innings. I think at some point they have got to extend him a little bit in a situation to, to see what they can get out of him. Because I think to me that's maybe the one untapped resource on this roster that you have that you haven't really uh, come close to maximizing yet. Yeah, Ethan Smith would be a good. Uh, I agree with that. You know, after thinking about it, I mean, it, it'd be nice to get him stretched out, and I think he's got a good power arm. He, he, he's somebody that's been around the program, and and uh, you know, I agree with that. There's you look at the the list of people though that could be that could be used, um, and and you know, it, it's again, once again, I'll just emphasize because they've had those <laughs> the one two punch they have the the opportunities to get out there. Uh, have been extremely limited. Um, I love the 
Brownie and Corbin, uh, it's such a, it was such a, uh, a move by them, a typical move. And I'm not saying it was bad, but, you know, even to stick in Berkwich in that no-hitter situation, here's a guy who, I mean, those are that was the only two innings he's pitched, right? And he maybe had one other appearance. He's had two now. Uh, and, and to put him in and put a kid in in that situation when the no-hitter was on the line. And it just, that that is very Corbin-esque. If I if it's to put a kid in a situation, I can see what he's got. I mean, it was a, a nail biting situation, and but he that kid threw hard, and you know he gave up the home run, and the no hitter fell, and all that. But um, it was almost in the way of of Brownie and Corbin to kind of de-emphasize the no hitter, that not make it the key thing of every weekend. Like is you know Jack Leiter going to give up a hit and. So I'm not saying he did it on purpose, but uh, you know you got a kid like that who's a uh, young guy like that and threw him into the fire and and it didn't work out, but uh, gained some valuable experience. Well, I hate that they didn't get the no hitter because that would have been yeah. neat to see them get two in a row. I don't know if that's been done in the SEC ever, um, but here's the thing, okay? I I think that his explanation kind of made sense, and I'm thinking it at the time, is he wanted to see what he could do under a pressure situation, right? And holding a no-hitter, is that's pressure. But it's not the kind of pressure where if you screw it up, you're going to cost them the game. So really, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been doubly great for them if they get the no-hitter and he pitches well. Uh, but I understand what he was trying to do. And in fact, in terms of season risk and and things that relate to winning and losing. That was just the the cherry on the Sunday, right? If they throw a no-hitter. But I think it made a lot of sense. Uh, You don't often get a spot where you can pitch a guy in a pressure situation without the game at stake. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, you know, it looked like Berkowitz was overthrown a little bit. I mean, everybody was hyped up. They kept showing the dugout, and, and Leiter was standing there with Rocker and the guys. But... I think there wasn't a, you know, once it was over with, it was one of those things, all right, let's, let's get the game over with and, and get the victory and go back to the hotel. So, uh, but you're never going to get that experience like that kid had. And it, it wasn't a failure, just didn't happen. And, and uh, they move on. Well, speaking of moving on, Dominic Keegan has just started to pick up right where he left off before that injury, it seems to me. Yeah, and he he's, he still leads almost in every category. I checked yesterday as far as hitting. I mean, he's he's leads the team in runs. He's tied with hits, doubles, uh, one short on triples, uh, tied for tied with the elite team lead in home runs with Thomas, and and of course he he uh, leads the team in RBIs. So he just picked up right where he left off before he got the illness or, or the quarantine situation and. He's uh he's quite a success story, you know, hitting 483, which is 100 points better, a little over 100 points better than than Bradfield, uh, who's number two, but um, gonna be his first little road test if you don't include Missouri last weekend, uh, and 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 see how he handles the crowd at Baton Rouge. But I, you know, as far as the hitting's concerned, you know, what can you say? It was a lot of discontent the first uh, week or two of the season with C.J. Rodriguez and what he's done. The past two weekends from his spot, uh, just really uh, hitting the ball on the, on the screws of the bat. I mean, you know, it, he he is uh, he's impressed me and and uh, made me a believer. At first, I was 
thinking, well, this guy's just, you know, he's a catcher and he's going to be a contact hitter and doesn't strike out a lot. But he showed some power in the last two weekends with back-to-back weekends of hitting uh, home runs. And, and uh, I've been impressed with him. I think he's got to be the story of the last two weeks. Uh, still love Isaiah Thomas, uh, excuse me, Enrique Bradfield. Uh, Isaiah Thomas has done well, too. He's still striking out quite a bit more than he should, but uh, Bradfield is an exciting player, and he's just one of those guys, Chris, that he, he when you go to the park and you do the eye test of, of who are electric players, and it is so fun. He did it again the other night against Tennessee Tech of watching him run the bases, and it's all about extending, putting pressure on the defense to make the throw to throw him out. And uh, his numbers just continue to go uh, skyward, and he's fun to watch. You can you can tell a lot by a opposing. When I say opposing, the SEC network, the game, one of the games this weekend, of course, was done by uh, the Missouri crew, a Missouri-based crew, and even that they were glowing about Bradfield, how he just already looks like a junior or senior rather than he does a freshman. There is no. When you look at his body language and how he handles himself to play and his quiet confidence, there's no rookie about him. He, he looks the part. So uh, it, it'll be fun to see how he, he handles it in Baton Rouge and going forward this uh, next couple weeks. I tweeted this out. I don't know that I've ever seen a triple like the one that he had in, in, against Tech on Tuesday because that ball was fielded 10 feet from the edge of the warning track. It was, it was a ground ball. Uh, just to the gap, and he's just that fast. I, have Have you ever seen a guy hit a triple that, that didn't get to the warning track? I mean, it no, wasn't like I, a windblown fly ball or something just really flukish? Not in that park, because usually in that park it's because it hits one of the walls that's kind of the slanted walls at the base, and it kicks around out there. But that that's I agree with you. That's one of the few times that I've ever seen a triple like that at, uh, at Hawkins Field. Speaking of triples... Uh, 23 games in, without looking, how many triples do you think the pitching staff has given up? I, I want to say very little. I'm going to guess uh, two or three. That's two or three too many. Uh, zero. Uh, and you know. I have to think he's had a lot to do with that. Yeah, he can go get it now. He, he can go get the baseball. And, and that's what you want from your center fielder and uh, somebody anchor in that spot and and so but to do it at, at such a young age it just it really is impressive and is it did his father play somewhere I, I, they were talking about on the broadcast I walked in the room I think his dad played uh, ball somewhere and you can just tell genetically he's got it he's got the the tools to do that but I'll have to look up on that I'm not sure if it was his dad or or uh, it played somewhere in college a lot of these kids of course follow their dads but um he um, having him out there. If I'm pitching, I'm having him out there makes me feel a lot better about you know, confidence-wise about balls not going to the gap. Well, I think we tend to talk about his speed a lot, but I'm really impressed with him as a hitter. He's walked 18 times to 12 strikeouts. That is a stat that you almost never see for a freshman. Freshman, I mean, really, even juniors and seniors don't walk more than they strike out. Uh, to see that as a freshman is amazing. He can go to different fields. He doesn't hit the ball incredibly hard, but you've seen a little punch to the gaps or the other way at times. This kid is really a complete player. Now, I don't know what the pros are going to do with him because you're in a day and age where everybody hits home runs, and he just doesn't do that. But his speed 
and the bat control are just so unique for this day and age that I'm really interested to see what his pro future looks like a couple years from now. Yeah, and, and power is going to be his thing that he's going to have to work on. He's going to get a little stronger. Uh, of course, he doesn't want to get stronger with at the risk of losing speed. But you're right. But the, the pros love guys he can run. And I know in this era of hitting the ball out of the parks, the, the premium. But uh, I think he will definitely be someone who they'll find a spot for him. And he's only going to get stronger and bigger and, and uh, learn the game. And, and um, the power department, even they talked about one of the broadcasts, that's something he's going to have to work on, but I'm I'm definitely sure that he will. You know, Rodriguez has been a funny story because about a month ago, I was just really skeptical of whether the bat would come around. I saw a guy that made contact, but it wasn't hard contact. And I mean, the guy had just a knack for hitting infield fly balls, just one after another. He wouldn't strike out, but when he was putting the ball into play, it wasn't going anywhere. And so when Tim Corbin would talk about he's the only guy who can handle rockers fastballs in our scrimmages and, and talked about hitting him out of the park. I'm just like, I, I just hadn't seen that at all. You wouldn't know it from watching games, but my goodness, did that turn out to be prophetic or what? Because that kid hit two balls out to left. Uh, and I think one at home and they were just all hammered chip. I mean, the, the, the pop that this guy's got, he has really transformed his game just in the last two to three weekends. Yeah, and it's a very deceiving uh, power. I mean, you look at him the way he's, you know, he's built like a catcher, of course. Like, so not everybody's got, you know, have that build, but he's, he, uh, and I've been impressed with him behind the plate and the way he calls games. I was impressed with him. You know, here's a, here's a guy who comes in the opening weekend last year and catches the defending national champions. And, you know, he's got Rocker. He caught him that weekend. Um, uh, when they went to either the Arizona, was it Arizona for the first weekend? I think it was last year. Um, and just the way I was like, you know, your first inclination is, I right, who's this rookie? You know, what's he going to be? And just <clears throat> his demeanor behind the plate, the way he framed pitches, the way he called the game uh, was just all that impressive. And we were talking about potentially, you know, what was it, three, four weeks ago about a platooning situation uh, behind the plate and you've got all these guys behind him and we've never been as deep in the catching position. But when you play like he has the last two weekends, it's going to make it very difficult to pull him out uh, of that spot. And he, he, as long as he keeps earning the spot, he's going to stay in there. They've got right now, and you've got to put an asterisk next to this because these guys have, have missed some time uh, for whatever reason. But You've got three guys in the lineup. Well, Bradfield has not missed time. He's been there every day. You've got three guys in the lineup right now that heading into week three of SEC play have got over 500 on base averages. You look down the lineup, uh, you got Thomas at 418, Young at 400, Gonzalez 438, uh, Nolan uh, 384, Davis the low man on the totem pole at 342. Uh, that kid's really struggled. Uh, coming back from being hit in the face, I think any of us would have. He's got a career on base average of 420. I just look at that and go, when you've got that many guys who are that skilled at getting on base, I don't know, I think people tend to undersell their hitting and talk about it as a concern. I'm just not seeing it. Now, now maybe they face elite pitching in the league the next few weeks and go into a slump or something, and, and, and perhaps that plays out. But I'm not seeing the concern that maybe some people are seeing so far. I mean, yes, there are strikeouts, but look around the league. Everybody strikes out. 
Yeah, with well, just the nature of this league and Friday and Saturday starters, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get some strikeouts. Uh, and you know the thing I, I would think as far as the lineup considered anything else, you know the the Parker Nolan situation, the Colwick being out, you know Zach Point, you know there was some uncharacteristic plays in in the Missouri game. What was it, game two? Uh, that were, or was it three that it was game three that, um, you know, some blunders out there and some miscommunication, uh, going on. Uh, and you just got to wonder if that was just the fact that he hadn't been playing it all year up till the last three games. But those are the only real position, you know, they're at this point in the year, Chris, I don't see any holes where guys are going to potentially get moved out or they're going to try something different. I think it's more of the game three starter on the pitching side. But I, when you really look at it, and it should be this way, you get to about after this series or the next, you, when we return home, that's when you kind of zero in and, and the lineup's pretty set. And some years you don't really have that. But with this team, there's a lot of depth. But uh, the positions seem pretty much set. And, you know, I think that they're going to let Cooper Davis just fight through this uh, as much as he can. Uh, it is weird seeing him seeing him bat 226 at this point of the year. It's it's very uncharacteristic, but I think they're going to give him every benefit of the doubt. Well, defense, another thing that we maybe don't talk about enough, they haven't made an error from the catching position. Bradfield has not made an error in center where he's been the guy all year. Colwick had not made an error till he got hurt, and Young's made three, but that happens with shortstops. He's one of the best, if not maybe the best in the country defensively. I, I would have to think he's awfully close. So, uh, to me, their question marks are at third, where Gonzalez has struggled. He's made five errors. Uh, he's got some tools, though. It just He's erratic. And, and then at Nolan, I don't know how that's going to pan out. At second, if, if Colwick is out for an extended time, which I figure he's going to be, given what they've said. But really, you look across defensively, and they're just so good everywhere. Yeah, just not there's not many holes to punch in in that lineup. Uh, and and uh, if 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 somebody gets hurt, like what happened with Colwick, they've just plugged in or they've shuffled, uh, done a little shell game a little bit with third to second and and plugged uh, you know pieces back in. But they've been lucky so far with other than the Cooper Davis situation that happened the first of the year, and then you had Colwick. They've been pretty much injury free. Chip, any other thoughts before we end the show today? Yeah, let's. I, I want to take a little short dive here about the conference. Uh, you know, it, the way things are shaping up because it's a little. When you look at the standings, I don't start really looking at the standings until after this weekend. I never really have. You know, that after that third uh, series. But when you look at, and a lot of this is who people have played and they haven't played. You know, Tennessee sitting, uh, you got Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, one, two, and three in the East. They're tied. So tied for first, excuse me. Um, and, and, you know, Tennessee has the benefit. They don't play any of the Mississippi State. They don't play Ole Miss. So they don't play the two Mississippi schools. Uh, when I look at them, Chris, I, I want to see how they do uh, later on when they, they have in everybody. I mean, I, I had a. I had a discussion with a, an old teammate of mine. You know, he sent me, I said, I think UT's pretty good. And they've quietly gotten themselves to where they're, you know, sixth in the country, I think, in one of the polls. But, you know, they did lose to Indiana State two out of three. They got shut out by Charlotte, nine nothing. You know, I want to see them later uh, in the season when they have to run the gauntlet with 
three of the top five teams in the country. They got to play Arkansas. You know, they, they've got to go on the road for that. So, you know, it remains to see, but I think that it's impressive what they've done up there. Kentucky's a mystery to me. Of course, they played Missouri, one of those. So it's kind of like, is that a false number? I think South Carolina is pretty dadgum good, uh, even though uh, we swept them. Um, we, we didn't sweep them, did we? No, we won two out of three, but dominated the first two. They go and sweep Florida. That's that. I, even when they were here, uh, I've told some former teammates, I think South Carolina is pretty good. Um, and then, you know, you've got Florida, Georgia, Missouri. Uh, Florida's a mystery getting swept last weekend. I, I think they're super talented, but the jury's still out. Uh, I think Georgia and Missouri, as I've said, I just don't think Missouri's very good. And then the West, I think Ole Miss is really good, and I think Arkansas is really good, 6-0 and and 5-1, and respectively. And then you kind of got Mississippi State, A&M, and LSU, the bottom half of the league on that side, LSU, Alabama, 1-5, and five, and Auburn, I don't think is very strong either this year. So I think it's a little top-heavy right now and remains to be seen. You know, we get to play Ole Miss. I wish we could play Arkansas. That would be a lot of fun. And that series in, in May, if things hold up, I think is going to be a dynamite series. I, I would, I'm going to try to maybe make it down there in May. If I can get a ticket, although on StubHub, I think they're going for $350 a piece, which is absolutely blows my mind that an SEC baseball game would be $350 on StubHub. But I picture that just being, you know, beautiful weather, hopefully, and 11, 12,000 people. That should be a showcase series if this thing continues. But just a little bit as I look into the league, it's, I think some of the numbers are surprising to summarize. But I think a little bit might be a little false of who these teams have played. And when UT has to run that gauntlet here in a couple of weeks and Kentucky has to play some stronger teams, I think that'll even out. Yeah, just a shameless plug. I do a daily podcast on the SEC. You can find that at Southeastern 14, the Southeastern 14 podcast. You can find it at southeastern14.com. We just got finished talking about the SEC heading into the weekend and one of the topics was Florida. I don't know if you caught this, but Kevin O'Sullivan has moved Jack Leftwich and Tommy Mace, I think it was, out of the weekend rotation, uh, which those are two what preseason All-Americans. I don't know what is going on down there. Something just seems off the way they play. They've got one quad, one win so far, I believe. But that is going to be a really interesting situation to watch. And, of course, they got Ole Miss. Uh, you know, I don't know that Florida can afford it to lose a series, certainly not get swept. But that that was really shocking when I saw that he had taken those two guys out of the rotation. Yeah, that is that is surprising, Chris. And, you know, there's different ways to motivate people. Uh, who knows what's going on inside the program, and maybe that's what he's trying to do. But, you know, I watched him the first weekend when they had that series against Miami and, and uh, wasn't really blown away. I mean, they've got some talent, but they might just still be trying to, to – find things out it, it did tell me a lot about South Carolina though I'll tell you that much when you know they got that momentum from game three of winning here and they go home and sweep them in a, a very contested series I think it was some emotional series one of them you know was a walk-off uh, win and and um, so those two you know those two battle it out so yeah from I think it's still hard to tell and you, it goes without saying with the last couple weeks of it being one through five in the country 
in different orders uh, that the SEC holds national spot one, two, three, four, five. That tells you all what you need to know. And right now it's just everybody beating up on each other and those will flatten out a little bit and, and, and straighten out. But it is weird to say uh, that LSU is almost falling out of the top 25 and some polls they have, one poll they're 25. And I guess in closing about it all, it just, this is, um, yeah, and Tim Corbin and, and staff will have them ready to go because a desperate team, especially like LSU, when they realize the brevity of this situation this weekend, they're going to be throwing everything they can at it. And it is not going to be an easy series. And, and we're going to have to be on our game for us to, to win the series. Uh, I think expectations, you go in there and win two out of three. That, of course, you win every series. If you go out and win every series, you win 20, 21, 22 games. That's, that's going to probably win you a league championship. So sweeping is not going to happen every weekend. you got to take them as they come. And, and definitely the goal being go, go back home with at least two out of three. Well, another note on Florida, Judd Fabian, who was maybe the preseason player of the year, has struck out 40 times, which is just an absurd amount. Uh, that kid's really struggling, and, and I wonder, um, you know, if he's dug that big of a hole this early in the season where he's making contact that little, you have to wonder if that gets rectified. But anyway, Chip, I'll give it to you to close the show. I know you've got a real estate business. I want to give you a minute to advertise that. So the, uh, the floor is yours as we end this thing. Sure, Chris. Just a quick note about our uh, real estate company, Frederick & Clark Realty. For your listeners, you might recognize our tan and blue signs all over the Middle Tennessee area. That's been our trademark for, goodness, 57, 58 years. Uh, Vanderbilt people running this firm. Vanderbilt people established the firm. My father being a former basketball player and my brother a graduate, myself a graduate and a former baseball player. So we've got deep roots in this community, in the Vanderbilt community. So if any of your listeners are looking, needing a real estate professional in this ever uh, competitive market that we still are in, the, the inventory is really, really low. And that's really good if you're a seller, right? Because people don't have much to choose from. I think the average uh, days on market for a home right now in the Middle Tennessee area and in the mid-state area, more Davidson County is 20 days, which is pretty remarkable. And so the inventory is really not low. What does the inventory really low also mean? Is you need a professional to help you, especially if you're buying or you're selling as well, but especially on the buy side. Why is that important? Because if you're in a highly competitive situation on buying and you go in by yourself and you think you're going to negotiate the, all the obstacles as far as making an offer that's the best offer, handling a multiple offer situation where you know there's competition, you need an agent who is experienced in doing that. Not every agent knows uh, the comings and goings as far as how that's the best determined, how to write the contract, what terms to offer, and that's why you need a, a agent like one of them that we have here at Frederick Clark in Nashville and Brentwood. Two office locations. You can look us up on the web at frederickandclark.com. Call me personally. I'll talk to you. I can set you up with one of our professionals. Again, 183 agents now that we have in between the two offices, and we'd love to help you out for your real estate needs. Well, thanks for your help on baseball, and I look forward to doing this next week. This weekend should be a fascinating series. I think Evandy comes out with the win in Baton Rouge, I don't care if, if LSU is one and five in the league. I think that's a that would be a huge get for Vandy uh, coming back home for Georgia next weekend. And uh, 
Either way, whatever happens, you and I here will be here next week to talk about it. Hope you have a great Easter, Chris. Uh, same to you. Happy Easter to our audience. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, and catch us again next week.